0: Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey, hey, everyone. Great to be with you all. Thanks for joining again. Really quickly before we hop into this super fun conversation with Caroline Connor, I want to let you know that I've dropped my sourdough pizza night ebook. You all asked for it, so I did it. And it is available for free with the pre-order of my book, Cheese, One, and Bread when I asked you all, okay, what kind of gift do you want to get if you pre-order my book? A pizza guide really, really took the cake because you all know that I'm totally obsessed with sourdough pizza nights because every Friday, Connor and I We basically, especially during lockdown, we like live for these Friday night pizza nights. And living here in Italy, we just went back into another lockdown. So that's really fun. Just kidding. It's not fun at all. But pizza nights keep a smile on my face. Conversations like the one I had with Caroline Connor keep a smile on my face. And you all uh, keep me very happy. And quite literally, the quirky club keeps me afloat. So thank you, quirky club. That is That is my Patreon community. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it is a way to support creators. So you support my weekly YouTube videos. You support these podcasts. And I love making all of this stuff for you all. So it's a win-win all around. If you join the Patreon community, you'll get exclusive recipes. We have live chats. It's a ton of fun. So check it out. And... Now let's talk about Caroline Connor. I teach wine to people who love wine and feel intimidated by it. So Caroline is an entrepreneur living in Lyon, France. She is the woman, the personality behind Wine Dine Caroline, a company that's all about enjoying wine and learning about it in a very accessible way. She's just the kind of wine lover that I wanna have as a friend because she doesn't stand for snobbery, but her breadth of knowledge is incredible. She has her WSET diploma, over 12 years of experience in the industry, and is currently pursuing her master of wine. We talk about why she's focused her wine knowledge and business on normal people um, and away from the like lingo and cliques that can dominate that sphere. We also talk about why she loves Lyon and why it's the hidden gem of France. And then towards the end of the show, I got a little nerdy with her. And since I'm living in Italy now, I asked her about some specifics of how Italy's wines differ from France's wines, and I loved her breakdown of champagne versus Prosecco, and she actually has a whole masterclass on sparkling wines, which just sounds amazing. So, all of that and much more in this episode with Caroline. So, let's jump right in, shall we? I'm so excited to welcome Caroline Connor to the podcast. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me here. So I I almost can't say your name or think your name without putting it in the bucket. Wine Dine Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. (laughs) The name of your business is just like, honestly, when I think of you, I think of you as Wine Dine Caroline. It's funny. It's a name that happened really organically. It was um, just
1: when I signed up for Instagram 100 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> that's what I, I named myself and that's,
0: that's it. What? That's the reason. So the genesis was Instagram and then it has rippled into this incredible business that you've built.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it really was, my gosh, I think I got on Instagram back in maybe
0: 2012, something like that. So it just was. Oh gee. Yeah. And you are an entrepreneur who has dabbled in so many things before really finding The gem of, I feel like you found your passion a while ago, but educating wine appreciators in a very non snobby way about what they're drinking.
1: That is really, I think, where, yeah, where I've gotten to is I teach wine to people who love wine and feel intimidated by it. And I don't, I don't get super nerdy in the industry often, because I'm, I don't even really like touch the wine industry that much. I'm really focused on, on people, on like normal people. Uh, and the wine trade has built a lot of gates and barriers around it. And there's a lot of lingo and there's a lot of clicks and there's a lot of, of talk that I think really puts off everybody else. And there are more and more people these days who, who get it and who are doing incredible, um, really accessible education too. And that that's, it's really cool. And it's really new, but I really stumbled upon it through uh, tourism because when I moved to France, I started a business doing wine tastings for tourists. And that, that came about because nobody else was doing it. And it seemed like a a gap in the market. And that made me really realize that I love starting from scratch with people and really having them leave an experience with me feeling like they learned something, but also
0: had a great time. But so how did you, pivot that business and like in person with people starting from scratch with people to COVID hit. And then you have moved your whole business online with virtual tastings and also YouTube videos, which are so fantastic. And, um, you know, you have these like downloadable PDFs and forms and and this education that's now accessible via the web. What was that pivot like? to go from in-person to this.
1: It was intense and it's still, you know, ongoing. Basically I was in, I took one last probably ill-advised trip in March. I went to Mexico city for a food tour with Les Dames which is a, a nonprofit organization for uh, women leaders in, in hospitality. Are you, a, are you a dame?
0: No, you should be.
1: Um, (laughs) uh, but it basically, I went to Mexico city and had this incredible week. I, I actually had two of my sisters who live in America, meet me there. And so I got to see two of my sisters right before everything shut down. I came back three days later, we were in quarantine um, in France. So I'm somebody who is very much, I'm not a futurist, I'm a, I'm more of a historian. I studied archeology span and anthropology in college and I saw what was happening and I knew that it was not going to be over quickly. I knew that deeply. I knew it quickly and I knew that I had to make a decision and I, I mean, I knew that it was inevitable and I might as well do it now. It was hard though. I mean, I was pretty depressed. There were definitely days where I didn't get out of bed because what was the point? when my business was dead, when, when, you know, we were isolated, it was horrible. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I wasn't feeling that way, I was working, I was figuring out what was next. I started doing free virtual wine tastings, uh, out of solidarity with the tourism industry as part of a Facebook group, um, that I'm in with Jessica, uh, where, where Jessica Hammer, she's a taste of Toulouse where she actually introduced me to this group tourpreneur, um, and Shane Whaley, he has a great podcast too, but, basically I started doing these free tastings and and they worked really well. And I'd always, you know, I think I'd thought about virtual wine tasting before, but didn't realize that it could actually work. And it did. And it really, and I was good at it because I'm a good presenter and I, and I asked questions, you know, to people about their wines and people had a lot of fun. And then I ended up getting, um, like a reference in the New York times in April. So it was all really early that I was doing this and it became clear that there was a market here. So I got sucked into the cult of online courses. I realized that people weren't being served very well in this niche. Um, And there's not a lot of people doing it, you know, for wine education, there are very formal channels where you get a certificate and a pin and this and that at the end, you know, I have my WSET qualifications and I'm currently studying to be a master of wine, but like normal people don't need a W set. They don't care. They don't need to take a test.
0: Yeah. I've done WSET level two. You've got the diploma, correct? So you, you went through level four, right? All, All four levels. Yes, and so my I mean right there, my mind is is blown because I was like, do I want to take level three? And then I looked at what level three included, including blind tastings, and I was like, ah, uh, okay, I think that I'm good with the knowledge that I care to have for myself. So let's. I just want to like harp on this for a second. Your qualifications are super through the roof. When Everyone calls themselves an expert in something. You've got these qualifications. The the knowledge inside your head is... Incredible. Um, you know, like I felt like in order to learn anything about wine, I needed to get super specific. So I focused in on Italy for for my book that's coming out in April. Italy's the hardest country. I, too. which is what I've learned. Like all the native grapes and everything, it's like oh it's super bonkers. But it's like okay, so I started in this like really specific place to learn anything, and then you multiply that by the world. And and it's just an incredibly overwhelming amount of information. How do you boil it down to share with the lay, the average lay person? Well, you know, I think this is, that's an interesting
1: question because the fact is that what I like to talk about, I talk about, you know, current trends. I talk about what's going on. I'm not telling you a list of all the grapes that are in, you know, let me think of a random appellation that go into Chateau Pop, You know, the thirteen or whatever twenties. I don't even know. Like I should know that. I don't care. I don't care. I really don't. And so, and people don't care. You know, what I can talk about when we talk about Chateau Pop is is the history of of why it's famous. Because when the Papacy split and the Pope moved to Avignon, that was the local wine. You know, like I can talk about. Things that I think are interesting, which do tend to be more historical and more
0: relatable in some ways. Like Absolutely. I don't
1: care about like soil composition.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or rootstock. Although you you like you have touched on that importance and and kind of like you have talked about sustainability in the wine world and also like I feel like you do a great job of straddling the like the super extreme like natural wine. <laughs> Who are like so dogmatic, and then the people who are are anti that stance, right? It's it's
1: nuanced, and this is why. Yeah, I get really annoyed actually with the natural wine um, scene. Because I actually I work with a lot of great natural wine producers. I drink a lot of natural wine. I love that. Natural means. Wine. You know, that's yeah. I love natural wine too. Some of it, but I yeah, don't like of it of <laughs> if it tastes like feet. I don't like it if it's <laughs> if it's if it's too messed up and and if I feel like the winemaker made stupid mistakes that didn't need to be made or refused to do certain things that could have made their wine better. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think there's a lot of mythology about about wine quality. And it honestly, like the natural wine scene and the the way they talk about it to me is a little bit MAGA. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit um, mythological, like wine wasn't better in the past. It wasn't, it was worse. Ask your parents, you know, ask your grandparents what wine tasted like in the sixties and the seventies, like the greatest wines were great. Everything else was garbage Hmm. and wine technology has gotten us so far. And you know, democratically, like, why shouldn't cheap wine taste good? I'm not here to tell you that that your liter bottle of Barefoot Moscato for for you know six dollars shouldn't taste good. I'm glad it tastes good. If you love that and it, it tastes like juice, it's delicious. You know, I'm not here to tell you not to drink that stuff. But I do think it's important to understand the difference between what I call like Franken wine, like 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 it's McDonald's. It tastes delicious. It's engineered to taste delicious. It does you know, obliterate terroir and this idea of a sense of place. It is um, certainly adjusted to high heaven and we, and there's not a lot of transparency about how they make these wines, where the grapes come from, how people are treated, the people that pick the grapes, you know, all of these sort of issues come together, but I don't think that it's fair to expect everybody to go to their, you know, boutique wine shop. If you live in Iowa in in the a, a suburb or in, you know, the countryside, you don't have a little, probably you might not have a little, you know, artisan wine shop. Right. And if you do have one, I do think you should go there, support small businesses and they support small wineries. But,
0: but it is I a matter of access wine- in, in yeah. a very real way.
1: Absolutely. And and it's about allowing for reality that like the wine industry is a big place with a lot of different um, layers mm-hmm. and that consumers have a lot of options. And that the more we kind of, treat them badly for the choices that they make, the less interested they are in learning because they've been conditioned to feel like we're going to try to make them feel stupid.
0: I think that you used the perfect word when we first began this, (laughs) you said nuance. And I think that if people, the more people realize the nuance of the wine industry, the better, like that is what actually has to happen, right. To, to move forward and incorporate some of the positive environmental things of natural wine for instance and you know like in order to move to the next step it's like people need to understand the nuance and that there's kind of space for a lot of different things but just understanding where it all falls and that is so hard because us as humans we love to put things in boxes and like good bad absolutely, absolutely. how do you as and like it, and a teacher a big world. yeah as a teacher how do you how do you tackle that Well,
1: you know, my tastings these days, I've been doing them for, for, you know, months now, my virtual tastings follow a a pretty similar format where we, I teach you how to taste and like the vocab and stuff like that. We go through the wines, we look at Google Earth, I talk about the concept of terroir, I talk a little bit about how wine is made. Um, In my course, you know, we go through things more, um, you know, more step-by-step, like each module has a different theme, you know, wine production, the vineyard in the cellar, different styles, you know, the different grapes, blah, blah, blah. But... At the end of every tasting, people are always asking questions and the same questions come up a lot. And those are about sustainability, about packaging, about sulfites, hmm. um, there's a lot of misinformation about sulfites, about- um, Your
0: YouTube video quote is unquote. excellent about sulfites. I'll put a link to that like, in the yeah. description box. Oh
1: gosh, calm down is the answer. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think I go with what I think is important and what people, what I see people are interested in. So. The in my in my wine course it wraps up with a chat about you know where I basically talk about technology in the future and marketing and and you know like current trends in wine, and I think that stuff is super interesting, and and one of the things that um that I really like to impress upon people and and this was something that I did recently I did a, a challenge called Try January mm-hmm. in my Facebook group where everybody. Um, people sign up and then you had to try five different wines, a white, a red, a rose a bubbles, and then a wild card, you know, orange wine, fortified wine, something like that. But the purpose was to get people to try new things. But also when we opened the challenge, I did a presentation on how to, how to actually like buy wine, what to look for, how to Google it, what, what it all means. Because I think people, they, they're in a store, they're like, Oh, I don't know what this means. You have your phone, Google it. But you need to know what to look for because actually wine is one of the few places where it's actually pretty easy to put your money where
0: your mouth is if you have access. Yes, comes back to access. You mentioned that you studied anthropology and archaeology. And I love how it, you know, that is... Act goes actually very hand-in-hand hand with wine. And as you mentioned before, uh, the history, right? That that's something that you take a lot of joy in sharing. And that is a very relatable part of the wine industry. Now you're in Lyon where you have lived. How long have you been in Lyon now? I've been here for three years. Okay. So you, you've you got all the French vibes happening. And um, what's, what's Lyon like? It's the best. You know, people...
1: Well, Americans go to Paris and Provence. British people go to Paris and they go to Dordogne, They go to the Alps. Nobody comes to Lyon. You come to Lyon if you're like an old person on a river cruise. (laughs) Lyon is somewhere that people drive around a lot, Um, and it's a pity because it's stunningly beautiful. It's the culinary capital of France, the gastronomic capital. I love it. It's they they call it taille humaine. It's human sized. It's big enough to be, you know, anonymous but small enough to run into a friend. It's I can get anywhere I want probably in about 30 minutes. And often that would be on foot, a combination of foot, metro, cycling. We have two rivers. It's really beautiful. There's an ancient medieval town. The whole city is really mysterious. It was the Roman capital of Gaul. So it's a really important city historically. I live on an old Roman road um, in in a historic building. I live in a uh, an old silk factory. I like this country, I like, um, I do like French people, although they can be complicated. Uh, I think it's such a beautiful place, you know? This country is so beautiful and people see such a small part of it. And you know, you're in Puglia right now, which is a place that most Americans have never heard of. And Italy is the same, there's so many different parts of it that are so beautiful that that we don't see often, that are off the beaten path. So I really like exploring the parts of France that Americans don't normally see.
0: So while we're talking about uh, France and Italy similarities and differences, let's look at the wine of France and Italy similarities and differences. So
1: Italy has just the wild variety of indigenous grapes. And these are grapes that didn't leave Very, Or they they didn't survive abroad after phylloxera.
0: For some people who don't know what phylloxera is, can you do a a quick explanation? So
1: phylloxera is the COVID-19 of wine. Um, Basically, phylloxera was a disease that spread throughout the world at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, that kills. It's actually a little bug that eats the roots of the grapevine and the vine slowly dies. It took a long time for people to figure out why everything was dying.
0: Because it's it a microscopic bug, right? It's like, yeah, yeah they're
1: tiny, teeny yeah. tiny microscopic bug. Um, It was really devastating. It it destroyed um, communities. You know, there, I, I remember being in Croatia and on a like military tour, but I was chatting to the guy, our tour guide, and he said that the population of Croatia was halved by phylloxera. And so I think that actually, if you did this, you know, this is a, a PhD for another day, but, you know, doing research about migration patterns because of phylloxera, I think mean, it'd be really interesting to see what happened? Because that was a period where a lot of Europeans were leaving Europe. Wow. And that I think would Phylloxera probably had something to do with
0: it. <gasps> yeah. Wow.
1: But abroad, you know, in outside of Europe, it also was devastating. And it meant that a lot of the vineyards that had been established died. And so the modern wine industry really is a post Phylloxera baby. And, and even, you know, there's Phylloxera, then we have World War I, World War II. Um, World War I, Prohibition, World War II. Uh, prohibition obviously is impacting the American wine industry, but it means that really like the real establishment of the modern wine industry is post-World War II. And so when people did replant and develop, redevelop, uh, wine growing regions, they, instead of just being the grapes that the migrants brought with them, which is what it had been in the past, they were like, okay, what, what are we going to do here? French grapes were, they were known. They were a known element. People understood Um, They had been studied very well in France and abroad. They were remotely pronounceable. There was already an awareness of them and they were affiliated with quality already. So people chose to plant um, French grapes. And there was a lot of, you know, there was intentionality behind that. So, you know, is Sangiovese worse than Merlot? No, but the French grapes are what, People ran with in this time, and so French grapes are the ones that we see really around the world. Although more and more Italian grapes are cropping up outside of Italy, which is super exciting. So I think that you know the world stage looks to France because of a lot of you know historical reasons, whereas Italy kind of went under the radar. And the Italian regions that were very famous for quality, so namely like Chianti, Tuscany, um, Brunello, and you know in Piedmont they, you know, they've always been pretty prestigious, but for the rest of the country, I think a lot of it was, was the same in France was, was for peasants, you know, it was locally drunk and it still is. Yeah. And it wasn't and that's what particularly this region, high quality.
0: Yeah. This region is a, is an example of that, but, but that is starting to change.
1: Well, and that's, that's the thing. It's, you know, now that I think, I think younger people are, you know, they're not as tied to the way things have been done and they're more interested in entrepreneurship and creating their own path. They see that there's a market for it. It does take it, you know, people being creative and being forward thinking, it takes a little bit of investment. But I think that, I think at least very exciting when I think you see like Sicily is doing really, really well, you know, yeah. and they've really been able to basically have independent small producers elevate the reputation of the, of the whole island. Um, so, you know, I'm not an Italian wine expert, by the way, (laughs) because it is a minefield and it's something that is definitely gonna be interesting for the master of wine working on my, my Italy wines. But I do think that, I think that there is still, um, a lot of mass produced wine in Italy that's not that great. I think there's still some quality issues in certain places, things it's, it's more hit and miss. Um, but I think there's so much opportunity for, ambitious winemakers and young winemakers and people that want to do things to make really good wine with with the beautiful grapes that they have. And that's really exciting. So
0: I wanted to ask about the difference between the main sparkling wines coming out of Italy versus coming out of France. And I wonder if you could just talk to that quickly.
1: Sure. Well, I, in my sparkling wine masterclass, which is available online as a recording, uh, it, I do discuss this. Basically, sparkling wine wow. masterclass.
0: This is excellent. Sparkling wine masterclass. What does? Oh wait. So, can you just quickly, like, what does that entail? If people w- sign up for this sparkling wine masterclass, what can they expect?
1: They get instant access to a uh, presentation. So, I love Canva. I'm always in there with my graphics, making cute powerpoints um, with with stupid. Icon- I like I like stupid clip art, you know. So I make it cute <laughs> and funny. But I basically talk about the different types of sparkling wine how they're made where they're from why they cost such widely different amounts and um, what you can expect from them and it's really fun and, and then you know there's a QA a recorded QA but you can get a lot of questions answered in that presentation. My style is not to like waffle on for two hours so it's about 30 to 45 minutes nice cool and, and you get a PDF, a PDF download too love it great
0: okay so Italy versus uh, France so. This is super
1: reductive, but let's do it. Italy really pioneered, invented and pioneered the tank method of sparkling wine production. So most sparkling wine requires a double fermentation. When we talk about double fermentation, what does that mean? Normal wine is grape juice plus yeast. The yeast eats the sugar in the grape juice and creates alcohol and carbon dioxide. When carbon dioxide, you know, blows off, and that's what fermentation is. When we have a second fermentation, we're adding more sugar, more yeast, and we are trapping it in a vessel of some sort, so the carbon dioxide is stuck inside the wine. In champagne, which is our, you know, like standard bearer for for French sparkling wine, they do that second fermentation in a bottle, and the yeast... When, it, when it's finished its job, it dies, it falls to the bottom of the bottle, which is horizontal. And there's, so there's a lot of surface area of yeast to liquid and the yeast actually dissolves into the liquid and gives you this like toasty, bready, doughy thing. And this is a process that takes a while and, and the wines are expensive. They, they're, they it's pretty labor intensive. Um, it's, it's a process that is expensive to do and it takes a long time. So you're talking a, a couple of years minimum. And so that's one of the reasons why a traditional method or a champagne method sparkling wine would be more expensive. In Italy, they invented um, the tank method. The tank method is doing a sparkling wine in in a tank. So it's in a sealed tank under pressure and they do the second fermentation in there. And what that does is it reduces the yeastiness because the yeast falls to the bottom of the tank. There's not as much juice to yeast surface area and it creates a lighter style um, it's quicker, and it's really good for aromatic grapes. So with champagne, the grapes are um, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. But the aromas you're getting, the taste you're getting, really are a lot, a lot about the production. It's the yeastiness. It's it's, it's um, oak. If the wine was oaked before, then it's the thyme. With something like a Prosecco or a Moscato d'Asti, you're getting all of that lovely fruitiness from the grapes. And so this is a method that is also used in Germany a lot with Riesling. It works really well with grapes that have a lot of like floral fruitiness, where that's the point. So it, the fact that it's cheaper is awesome. Um, and it's not about being better or worse. It's very different. But that is the way most, a lot of the Italian sparklings are. And, you know, Prosecco is the famous one. And that's, that's really where they do it do it a lot. But uh, Italy does also make fantastic champagne-style wine in Franciacorta. And that is a really, really fantastic wine that is um, often less expensive than champagne as well for the quality.
0: That's a great breakdown. Thank you. If people want to learn more, which I'm sure they do, I mean, we have barely, barely touched the surface here. um, How can people find you and learn more?
1: I am Wine Dine Caroline. I love Instagram. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. I actually have a Facebook group, Good Wine, Good People. And that's a really fun place. So I'm really excited about my download, which is nine classic food and wine pairings. I hear all the time that people are really interested in food and wine pairings. So I created this list to just get you started and to uh, share with you some of the like truly classic universal pairings that work every time. So I'll make sure to give you that link, Katie.
0: amazing. There's nothing I love more than food and wine together <laughs> in my mouth and it's in my the, belly. It's the best. Yeah, it's so it's good. It's the best. <laughs> I would be so remiss if I did not ask you, Caroline Connor, how do you keep it quirky? It just is. It is. <laughs> it I don't have. To, I don't have to do anything to keep it that way. That's <laughs> just. That's just how. How I do it. That's just how we do here. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me an example? What's a quirky Caroline move? Oh man, I love.
1: Well. My number one song from Spotify from last year was Show Yourself from Frozen 2. So that tells you a little yes! bit about who I am. Oh, <laughs> we
0: are we are the same brand of quirky. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. I am so excited to follow you this year and see what else you do.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Katie. And I'm so excited to get your book. Hey, it's going to be here before we know it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> again to Caroline, who is indeed a woman of her word and pre-ordered my book, so thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. I have loved talking with Caroline. If she's the new face of wine, then I I fully, fully support that. Um, Again, you all can follow her at Wine Dine Caroline just about everywhere there is. And yeah, check out her food and wine pairing PDF download. I'm including it in the show notes as well as a link to her YouTube channel. If you love wine, then yeah, it's great. I hope you like this episode and a big thanks as always to the musician who wrote and performed the theme song you're listening to right now at funky bq on instagram that's my brother brian quinn he's the best and that's all for now don't forget to keep it quirky